The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossmeyer. And my very special guest today is UCI public health professor, Andrew Neumer. Dr. Neumer is an expert in pandemics, particularly the 1918 flu, and is a sought-after communicator on COVID-19. This is his fifth appearance on UCI Conversations since COVID turned the USA on its head in March 2020, 18 months ago. Since then, we've gone through the shock of the initial shutdown, surges, recovery, more surges, and then what appeared to be a savior in the vaccines. The last time Dr. Neumer was on the show in mid-May, three months ago, there was a sense of cautious optimism that perhaps we were turning the corner with this pandemic. But today, I am not sure about that. I find Dr. Neumer to be honest, thorough, and searching for answers that will best serve the community as a whole. With that, let's get into it. Welcome, Dr. Andrew Neumer. How are you today? Fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back on KUCI. Super. You know, doctor, I'm all ears. Can you please just give us your assessment, however long that takes, of where we are and what you think we should be doing now? Well, uh, I mean, a lot has happened since you and I uh, spoke last. Right. And uh, I mean, the vaccines, you, you know, as, as you said in your introduction, and as we discussed the last time I was on your show, you know, are, are kind of, we're kind of meant to be the savior. And uh, there's sort of two aspects, well, three really aspects of the vaccines that you know, have come to, to the fore, you know, in the, in the time since then. First of all, you know, not everyone out in the general public is doing somersaults about uh, the vaccines. <laughs> you know, a lot of people just refuse to get them. Um, other people, refusal is not the right word. I mean, but they still haven't gotten the vaccine uh, for, for various reasons. And so, so the uptake hasn't been, you know, high enough to completely squelch the pandemic. And that's, um, you know, unfortunate in, in my view. Uh, an, uh, another thing is that we're and seeing breakthrough cases. A breakthrough case is a case of 
um, you know, just to be clear on the definition, it's it's a case of COVID infection in someone who is fully vaccinated. That is to say, you know, four weeks past the second dose or or four weeks past the dose of, of a single dose vaccine. So breakthrough cases are significant for a number of reasons. I mean, people obviously, you know, who get them say, well, I was vaccinated. How come I'm getting COVID now? But they're important from the point of view. We, we now know that breakthrough cases can also transmit COVID. And so the vaccine itself is supposed to do two things. I mean, from the population perspective, it's supposed to prevent people from getting sick and in, in, indeed it's supposed to prevent them from getting infected. But so it's supposed to directly, you know, protect the person who gets vaccinated. So someone who gets vaccinated, you know, should have an expectation that they won't become infected. But also because of that fact, it gets us to herd immunity because, you know, a vaccinated person is like an invisible person from the virus's point of view. If the vaccine confers you know, sterilizing immunity against the virus. That is to say, that person is taken out of the chain of events that lead to spreading of the virus. But where you have breakthrough cases that can spread the virus, it's like, I mean, these breakthrough cases may still be protected from the sense that, you know, something that would have killed you would merely makes you sick and something that would have made you sick goes unnoticed. So the vaccine, even when there are breakthrough cases, it still ratchets down the severity like a whole notch or even two or three notches. So, I mean, personally, I'll take that. Like, you know, if, if you say, well, you're going to have a breakthrough case, but, you know, way less severe than, than if you didn't, weren't vaccinated, I think that's a good bargain. But, but I mean, if I can still spread it, then it, it, it makes it very, very hard for us to achieve herd immunity. And then the third thing I alluded to is that we have this new variant Delta that the salient characteristic of, of Delta is that it's highly transmissible. Uh, people who are infected with Delta have viral loads that are 1,000 times higher in some studies than compared to the alpha variant. That's huge. I mean, 1,000 times is obviously all your listeners know that that's a lot. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily translate into them you know, emitting a thousand times more viral particles when they breathe, sneeze, cough, and talk, because it's not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence between particles viruses shed and viral load inside the body. But nonetheless, I mean, Delta is highly more transmissible than prior variants. And, you know, that's what's driving the current wave that, you know, as, as we taped this interview on August uh, 20th, 2021, is gripping parts of the country. And we will come to the Orange County situation soon enough, but uh, we're also having a, quite a significant wave here. So the Delta is a big challenge to the vaccine on top of the existence of breakthrough cases and on top of the existence of people who, who don't want to be vaccinated. And you know, what we're finding is that the vaccines, they tend to wane. There's a lot of talk about booster shots now and, and a lot of speculation about whether we can have booster shots without taking vaccines away from people elsewhere who haven't gotten their first shots. It's, it's very complicated, as I'm sure we'll discuss further. But I mean, the vaccines are still our best bet. And I can't really emphasize that enough. I mean, I often point out on my Twitter, which is at Andrew Neumer, that health authorities need to be more candid about the prevalence of breakthrough cases. But I'm often queried about whether or not that means I'm skeptical of vaccines. And I mean, 
in order to query me about that fact, you would have to basically not be reading my Twitter feed on the regulars because I, I do always, you know, emphasize the, the virtue and power of vaccination. But but I, I'll, I'll just take the opportunity to be clear that, I mean, vaccines are still our best bet. You know, they're not going to be the white horse that arrives and kind of smothers the epidemic in its tracks and uh, kind of a mixed metaphor there. But, you know, it's it, it's not going to bring the epidemic to a, a screeching halt. So, you know, we still need to do other forms of interventions, uh, such as masking. And, you know, so we're in a much more complicated landscape than when we we spoke. I mean, I remember talking to you and saying that, you know, when, when we get a vaccine, if it works really well, it'll be a savior. And I, and I remember telling you that we have the vaccines now, we just need to implement them. And, you know, it's turned out to be a little bit more complicated than that, because the vaccine you know, doesn't really have the staying power in terms of uh, long-lasting protection at the population level that we had hoped. And so we're talking about booster shots and, you know, hopefully that will get us out of the woods. But it's not premature to say that we might be in a flu vaccine situation in which we get a booster shot every year, meaning there's no permanent solution. Um, it's just, We're really at a point where we don't know what the future of COVID vaccination is going to look like, but it's there's some great clouds you know, there that that weren't there maybe as much the last or time we spoke. So it, it's an interesting time in in COVID. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, a couple of things just strike me. Just talking about you know the Delta variant just being super more contagious a thousand times or whatever. So you're talking about something super more contagious to what originally was something like really remarkably contagious. <laughs> Right. So that that's pretty sobering. Well, yeah, just and just to reiterate, the, the viral load is a thousand times higher for uh, Delta compared to Alpha, according to at least some studies. But that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, someone in the grocery store who sneezes is outputting a thousand times more viral particles than before. So measuring contagiousness is tricky. Think, and haven't I heard that earlier variants or the earlier virus kind of calculated that you would infect 2.5 other people. And now with the Delta, it's like six to eight people. Um, I mean, the, the net reproductive number is is up to eight for uh, the Delta variant, which means that in a hypothetical population in which everyone was susceptible, if you introduced a sneezing person, that, that sneezing person would infect eight people and those cases would go on to infect eight people and so on. The situation on the ground is a little bit more complicated because the United States population or the, you know, the KUCI listener population or what, or what have you are not 100% susceptible. Some, some of us are vaccinated. Some of us have you know, recovered from a COVID infection and so have antibodies. So in the real world, the net reproductive number of eight doesn't mean that every case at the supermarket is going to create eight new cases because the real world is not completely susceptible. Mm. So the net reproductive number is it's, it's kind of an idealized number that doesn't have direct meaning in the world we live in, but it's, it's something that we estimate and calculate, but yes, the estimates of the, the reproductive number of the Delta variant are way up from, from the, the alpha variant, which was the previously dominant variant. And, I mean, however you slice it, it's clear that the Delta is more contagious than before and has generated waves of COVID in country after country and state after state in the U.S. 
in places that in, in some cases had just come off of a wave and could be expected to have some immunity. So yeah, I mean, Delta is, it's something not to be taken lightly. How about, you know, in terms of what we should be doing, my sense is, you know, going from earlier in the summer, a little bit of cavalierness, oh, I'm going to the supermarket, you know, and leaving my mask in the car. Oh, I forgot my mask. It's okay. But now I'm going back to my car and getting that mask. And I'm like, boy, going to an outdoor wedding uh, in September. Um, it's a family wedding. I'm, I'm a little concerned about that, especially for my 92-year-old dad going with me. Outdoor concert. Do you have any recommendations on that? It's, it, well, it's, it's very complicated. There's a lot of moving parts here. I, I, mean, I mean, I think, so we have, you know, masking as a possible intervention. And that's something that, you know, obviously the KCI listeners have heard about before now. There's two points I'd like to make, you know, here, you know, that are most important as far as late August 2021 about what people need to know about, about masking. You know, I, I think the messaging around masking was um, profoundly uh, muddled. And I, and I mean the high level messaging, I mean, you know, from the Centers for Disease Control, uh, et cetera. You know, there was this messaging that was telegraphed out that you can put away your masks. And that was, you know, in May slash June. And, you know, there's, there's a nuance there that gets lost. And if you, when when you tell people after the situation we've, you know, been in for over 12 months in, in May of 2021, that you can put away your mask, what people hear is burn your masks. And what they meant was put your masks in a cupboard because we might need them again in the future, but you can go out now without a mask. And the problem is there's a disconnect between those two things, between burn your masks on the one hand and put your mask away, but put it in a drawer, not in the garbage on the other hand. Now I've done, you know, lots of press for COVID, as you said in my introduction. And, and I was always clear, we can put our masks away, but not in the garbage, put them away in, in a drawer because, you know, we're going to need them again. I think people can handle that nuance or could have handled that level of nuance, but that's not the messaging that went out. And, and I think people misinterpreted the messaging that masks are over. And so that, that has made, in many cases, people more reluctant to put them back on again because the messaging was so muddled in the first place. Just to be clear, for about a period of four weeks from mid-June to mid-July, you know, transmission of COVID-19 in California, where, where I live and, and where I was during that time period, you know, was really so low that a vaccinated person really had extremely low risk of contracting COVID in the community during that time period. And you noted in your kind introduction that I'm, uh, I have a reputation of being very, very candid about, you know, things. And I think, you know, the, the longer this pandemic goes on, the more, you know, candor is going to be a very valuable asset because, you know, people will remember when you sugarcoated something and, and, and was, you know, weren't telling the truth or whatever. So I'll be, I'll be totally honest with, with you and your KUCI listeners. You know, I was out in public without masks, including like the grocery store and whatnot for a four week period from, from about mm. mid, mid June to mid July. Mm. Transmission in the community was very low and I am fully vaccinated. 
And the risk to me during that time period with my vaccination status was certainly no worse than you know, the risk of catching influenza during a normal flu season. In 1989 or 2019, you know, we didn't typically put on a mask when we went to the supermarket in February. So I, I wasn't masking in mid-July, uh, early July in, of this year. But, th- but things have changed and transmission is way up and breakthrough cases are way up. And when conditions change, the advice changes. And now we're in the phase where I am masking again at the grocery store. And I would advise your KUCI listeners to mask at the grocery store. And it's like I said, put the mask away in a drawer, not in the garbage, you know, and and what we've done, what I'm doing now is opening that drawer and finding the masks I left there and, and using them again, which for me just seems like, you know, basically what I said would happen, except that the masks spent less time in the drawer than I, I thought they would. And, you know, people who, who burned their masks are feeling, you know, shocked and betrayed now. And, and that's where I think we got the messaging wrong. The messaging never should have been burn your mask, you know. The problem is when you say you can put your masks away, that's what people hear unless, unless you really, you know, get into the nitty gritty. So that's kind of the situation we're in. Now, some people have said, well, if, if people like me hadn't ditched their masks, you know, for that period, we never would have gotten the rebound that we're in now. And I think that's frankly, an oversimplification. I mean, I'm fully vaccinated and haven't had a breakthrough case. I don't think I've been parts of any uh, chains of transmission of, of COVID. The, the problem is that vaccination uptake has been lower than we hoped. And so there's always uh, a population of unvaccinated people who are spreading it. I mean, the, the president and other health officials said in early July, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And I mean, that was really only partly true. Uh, it, was a, it was a pandemic of the unvaccinated spreading it enough so that we have a rebound now. And now it's a pandemic of all of us again because of the, the breakthrough cases. And so it is quite an unfortunate situation. It is, as you would say, a mess. I mean, I'm not pleased that we're in the middle of summer. Well, August is still summer, I guess. So we're, we're, in, we're in summer and we have a major outbreaks, you know, nationwide and here in California even. And, you know, these respiratory viruses are winter dominant. They prosper more in the winter. So I am nervous about if we can have such a wave now, I am nervous about, you know, what's, what's coming. We have 570 people in the hospital right now in Orange County in, in, in August uh, with COVID. Um, in the July 2020 wave, the first wave of COVID, uh, we had uh, 722 people in the hospital as the high water mark of hospitalizations. So, you know, we're lower than last summer, but last summer we had no vaccine. This summer we have a, f- a free and available vaccine. So the numbers are too high in the hospital. I, ho- I hope they'll go down soon, but school is also starting. And there's a lot of moving parts and the situation, as I've been describing, is, is not where we want it to be. No. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. If you've joined us late, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Public Health Professor Andrew Neumer, and we're talking all about COVID-19 and where we are with this pandemic. You just mentioned schools starting. Boy, that seems like... Right. So the thing with schools is... so. 
as your case and listeners know, one area in which COVID-19 or, or COVID as I as it's probably just better known, differs from flu is flu can often be very serious for the elderly, but also for uh, for kids, particularly young kids, infants and, and children under five. Mm. Whereas COVID, you know, tends to be worst among the elderly and then but not in kids. So COVID is different in that respect. And the Delta variant, there's there's a little bit of, of controversy brewing about how severe the Delta variant is among kids. Some people have emphasized that we're seeing more hospitalized kids and, and others have pointed out that some other data seems to suggest that the Delta variant doesn't really affect kids more severely than the the alpha variant did, but that if you have, you know, a nation with with millions of children and uh, the more widespread COVID becomes, the more kids you're going to have in the hospital, even if even if COVID is not that severe by and large for children. And add to that the issue that children under 12 have no authorized vaccine. I'm cautiously optimistic that Delta and you know other variants that are circulating right now aren't a game changer in, in terms of children being severely infected. So I'm not worried that the start of school, which was this past week as we're taping this interview, I'm not worried that the start of school is going to uh, result in, you know, in lots and lots of uh, seriously ill children. So that's the good news. Um, you know, th- that's not a watertight guarantee, but I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. And, you know, we have to weigh things against you know, the educational costs and social costs of keeping schools in a modified regime for the second school year in a row. But children can become infected with COVID. So children are much more typically asymptomatic than adults. So they become infected, but they just don't get sick. But because they're infected, they can spread COVID. And so what I'm worried about is that school opening will be a catalyst for cases among adults. And as we you know, have discussed, adults are, are much more likely to become symptomatic. And, and if we're talking elderly adults or people with other you know, risk factors, then, then they can become severely infected. Now, the elderly are, have the highest vaccination rates, both here in Orange County and, and everywhere in the United States. So I don't think we're going to see huge waves of mortality, although there will be deaths, clearly. But you know, I'm concerned that school will start and it will create waves of asymptomatic cases in kids. And the echo of those asymptomatic cases in kids will be symptomatic cases in adults. So there are sort of complicated mechanisms by which school starting can have you know, secondary effects that are, are nonetheless potentially worrisome. So yes, school reopening is a, is a big kind of question mark. And you know, yeah. uh, and I mean, not to mention the fact that parents have, you know, widely divergent opinions about whether masking is appropriate in schools. And, and I mean, it, I mean, we could talk about the educational aspects for, uh, you know, for a whole hour uh, and not even touch upon all the angles in, in terms of schools and COVID. I mean, there's it's a huge subject area, but yeah, schools, schools are definitely on my radar screen and, and it's part of what's making me apprehensive as we head into the fall. You mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, hospitalization. So you said that currently we have 570 
people in the hospital in Orange County, and that uh, about this time last year, there were 722. One of the big changers is though the death rate is significantly down. Is that true? So yeah, so the hospitalization number of 722 was the, was the peak of the first wave in Orange County. There were 722 hospitalized people on the 14th of July, 2020. And currently we're standing at 570, uh, which is lower, of course. Uh, In January of 2021, there were over 2,200 people hospitalized in Orange County with COVID. So that was the overall high point of hospitalizations. It's a, you know, it's a winter dominant virus. So early January was the, was the overall peak, but yes, deaths are definitely down. So deaths are reported with enormous delay. So I should, I should caution the listeners that, you know, we won't have the complete picture on August, 2021 deaths until October or thereafter. Some of the deaths that are reported now are actually stragglers from far earlier this year where the death certificates were processed late or something. So you know, mortality is a very lagging indicator, but the mortality is certainly down. I mean, vaccination protects people even when it doesn't prevent infection. It, it prevents severe cases that lead to mortality. And the other thing is that vaccination is skewed toward the elderly, partly because, you know, they were the first to be available for vaccination and also partly because they're just more likely to get vaccinated than other demographic groups. But because vaccination skews old, non-vaccination skews young, which means that COVID cases skew young. And we know that age is also a risk factor for mortality. So if the cases are skewing young, that means mortality will be down because age is an important risk factor for COVID death. Mm. So mortality is down. I am not expecting to go back to death rates like we saw in early January, but I don't think we're going to have significant increases in in cases without at least some mortality. I mean, COVID is, is not yet at the phase where it's like the common cold, where it's ubiquitous, but doesn't do permanent harm. I mean, there will still be COVID deaths. How about, you know, right now, um, you know, large outdoor concerts, people are close, you know, whether they're standing or sitting, even if it's outdoors, would you go? So, I mean, outdoor concerts are, or outdoor events are obviously preferable to indoors because of the sort of de facto infinite dilution of a virus caused by, you know, the fresh air, essentially. And we've seen time and time again that outdoor transmission is much harder for this virus. I personally am staying away from crowd events. I mean, everyone needs to make their own decision about what risks they're willing to take. It's almost certainly true that everyone on the planet will eventually get COVID in some way, shape, or form, even if it's an asymptomatic case. So I'm not going to tell the KUCI listeners, you know, don't go to any concert because it's just not clear that, I mean, that may have been good advice when the vaccine was a few weeks away from being licensed, because you can say, just don't go to the concert now. You can get vaccinated in six weeks and then then you can do what you like. But, you know, if your listeners are already vaccinated, you know, the the case they're going to get is a breakthrough case. It's going to be milder on average. You know, I mean, it's not clear that any of us can avoid this forever unless we just hide in our basement forever. And I'm just not 
comfortable telling people that, you, you know, you're never going to go to another concert again. People have to act in concert with their own tolerance for risk. I would say don't go to a concert unless you're vaccinated. I would say outdoor concerts are preferable to indoor concerts. I would say densely populated events are worse than sparsely populated events. The Lollapalooza Music Festival in Chicago a few weeks ago doesn't seem to have been associated with a large increase of cases, as far as we can tell. So that's an example of how you know you can do large events, music concerts outdoors with vaccinated people that don't have catastrophic results. You know, I would caution that there have been some estimates. Uh, it resulted in only 200 new cases uh, out of you know many many thousands of attendees and. I, I mean, we, we, it's, these things are really hard to estimate. Um, I don't, I don't take that at face value. I mean, I, I, I mean, we don't really have a complete measurement of everyone who's at Lollapalooza, but so I, it's not totally watertight that there were no cases, you know, or very, very few cases generated at Lollapalooza, but it, it doesn't seem to have been associated with a super spreading event, so-called. So, you know, I would not tell your listeners, don't go to any concerts. I would just tell your listeners to act in accordance with their own tolerance for risk. You know, I, I personally am not going to any concerts indoors or out. I haven't gotten COVID, you know, as far as I'm aware, um, up till now. I recognize that everyone on the planet will probably eventually get COVID. But, you know, just for my own peace of mind, I'd like to keep my own COVID infection at bay for as long as possible. And so I'm not doing what I consider to be risky events. And I just, I just know that if I went to a concert, I would spend, you know, we have to know ourselves. I I know that if I went to a concert, I would spend the whole time, you know, wondering if this is going to cost me a COVID infection and not enough time enjoying the, the music. Right. So I'm just going to spare myself the the misery of two hours worrying about COVID when I should be enjoying the music. And I'm just not going to go, you know, in the first place and I'll spend the money I would have spent on tickets on, on the records and I can right. sit at home and, and listen to the, right. to the music. But someone else, you know, may, you know, may say, you know, look, I'm just not going to worry about it. Right. And, you know, right now, as long as you're vaccinated and as long as, you know, the local transmission situation is such that concerts are allowed to be going ahead. I'm not going to tell your listeners, like, don't go. You know, the state, uh, effective September 20th, I believe, the state has a a new regulation that any event of 1,000 people or more indoors or out must have a vaccine requirement. So the KUCI listeners who are planning on going to any concert of any size after the 20th of September should plan on bringing their vaccine card with them in order to get into the gate. And a number of events are doing that even, even before the state order takes effect. But, you know, and, and some of these events may well be canceled if, if the situation gets much worse. But as, as long as the event is going ahead and you're vaccinated, you know, I'm not going to tell you don't, under no circumstances should you go. But at the same time, I'll give you my own advice. You know, I, I'm still not going to concerts right now. Gotcha. Excuse me one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest is pandemic expert and UCI public health professor, Dr. Andrew Neumer. Obviously, we're talking about COVID. Doctor, 
you know, when you start asking around my neighborhood, for instance, there are more people not vaccinated or at least within a stone's throw of my house. I thought almost everybody was probably vaccinated and there's more than one household. I thought it would be like maybe one household, but no, I, I know of at least two. And these are college educated, very smart, very research oriented. You know, some of the things that she, she uh, talked about is what's taking so long for the vaccine to be fully approved? You know, that, that seems to be a question. Can you answer that? I mean, I can answer it in part. So just to remind the, the listeners that there, the vaccine is currently authorized and the next step of the FDA giving its blessing to the vaccine above authorization is approval. You know, the approval is sort of more of a blue ribbon than authorization, if, if you will. It's not clear to me that, I mean, a lot of people are saying that they don't want to get it until it's approved, that authorization is not good enough for them. I'm not clear that that's not just an excuse. I really, frankly, wonder when the vaccine is fully approved, how many of these people are going to go out and get it versus finding some other fig leaf for their vaccine refusal. And for this reason, I, I hope the FDA doesn't rush approval because then people are going to say, well, it's approved, but they rushed it, if you see what I mean. And, th and that's part of the answer to you, the core of your question, that why, it's, why isn't it approved yet? I mean, I think they're hesitant to, to rush it because of the reason I just said, that people are going to then say, well, it's not real approval. And the, the normal process involves, you know, collecting reams and reams of, of data on adverse events and effectiveness and having uh, FDA review boards vet the data, having outside advisory boards vet the data, and then the FDA ultimately comes up with a determination. So it's a bureaucratic process that takes some time. And I don't envy the FDA here because there's a lot of pressure to approve it rapidly, but if they approve it too rapidly, then people are going to say it was rushed and it's not real approval. If they, if, if they don't approve it, people are going to say, well, it's not approved, so I'm not going to take it. But as I noted, I think in many instances, that's just an excuse rather than an actual reason. So it's a bit of a sticky situation. I personally understand someone who doesn't want to be, you know, the very first in line to get some experimental vaccine. I mean, vaccines are the most amazing public health innovation bar none. But, you know, that's not to say that, you know, if, if a thousand different labs invent a thousand different vaccines for a thousand different maladies, that we should all be r rushing out to roll up our sleeves a thousand times. I mean, you know, vaccines are the most important public health tool we have, but, but they have, you know, their place. So if someone says, well, I don't want to be the first to get an experimental vaccine, I think, you know, a, li a little caution is, is understandable, but, you know, th these vaccines now that we're talking about the COVID vaccines, they are authorized by the FDA. There are millions of person years of observation of people who've gotten them with very, very low incidence rates of adverse events and very, very high protection rates from COVID. Even when breakthrough cases result, the breakthrough cases are mild or typically mild. I mean, obviously there's a spectrum, but you know, I, I have no qualms telling the KCI audience that vaccination is the best thing that they can do for themselves and for the, the loved ones that they come into contact with. 
and I am a, a full disclosure, fully vaccinated myself. So your acquaintance who, who says she's skeptical because it's not approved. I mean, I mean, it'll be, it's only authorized. Uh, you know, I, I would be interested to see what happens when it is eventually approved and, and, and see if she'll get it. But I mean, you know, I think people of intelligence can look around themselves and say, what's more dangerous right now? Like some, you know, minuscule risk of an adverse event from one of these COVID shots, which we know, again, have millions of person years of observation by now versus, you know, getting COVID out in the community and then and winding up on a ventilator in a hospital ICU. I'll take the, the shot. Thank you very much. Yes. What about you hear these things humming in the background that the people dying from COVID are high risk, particularly overweight people or who have underlying issues. Do you concur with that or do you go, no, that's an overgeneralization? Can, can you shed any light on that? And I actually had a distant relative. He was a 45-year-old guy. He was overweight. And then within a week, he died of COVID, like literally two weeks ago. Is that true, doctor, or no? Don't, well, don't, I mean, don't rely on that. Well, I mean, I, I, I think you know, I mean, obesity is is stacking up as a risk factor, and diabetes is seems to be stacking up as a risk factor, and those are correlated often. So, I mean, many diabetics are overweight. Many Americans, you know, could lose a few pounds, and I wouldn't want you know, all the KUCI listeners to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm at major risk of severe COVID because, you know, because I'm a few pounds above where I want to be. You know, the, the CDC does a, a, a survey. It's a so-called wet survey in the, in the sense that they, that they take bio samples. It's called the NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And so they, they don't just ask you how tall are you and how, how much do you weigh, but if you're if you're selected randomly to be in the NHANES, they, they send a phlebotomist to your house and to take a blood sample and they, they send a nurse. Uh, and, and so they weigh people and they, and they, you know, so we, and we know from that nationally representative survey that Americans are getting heavier and heavier over the, over the last decades. And this survey has been repeated a number of times. So, I mean, Americans are heavier than they, than they used to be. And, you know, I, I don't think just being a few pounds overweight is especially a risk factor for severe COVID. So, I mean, we, we know that at being asthmatic is a risk factor. Uh, you know, it's a respiratory virus. So there's sort of a logical connection there. You know, age is probably the most salient risk factor. So someone who's 75 is at higher risk of, of severe COVID than someone who's 55. And I, th- I think age to me is the most important one. So we definitely want to take care not to expose, you know, our parents or, or other senior citizens to COVID. So I would, I would be sure to mask around, even if we're not masking, you know, in, in our workaday life. And I mean, some risk factors are modifiable. So, I mean, um, you know, getting into a state of, of better cardiovascular fitness, you know, by just walking 30 minutes a day or whatever, you know, if, if that's something that can work, then I would encourage people to, to, you know, strengthen their cardiocirculatory 
system by doing some, you know, regular exercise if, if, if it's at all possible. I mean, when this epidemic first struck and, and it really crossed pe- most people's radar screens in March of 2020, crossed mine a l- little earlier than that, but a lot of people would have thought, well, my risk factors aren't modifiable. Like if I start exercising now, what difference does it make? I'm not going to become uh, in top shape in the next, you know, five weeks or something. When, but, you know, here we are, you know, really 19 or 20 months into the pandemic and, you know, COVID is going to be with us in one way, shape or form, you know, f- for a long, long time. So I, th- I think to the extent to which we can modify risk factors by, you know, getting in shape, that that's good. I want to be clear that, you know, I know people have complicated lives and people are raising kids and people are, you know, putting groceries on the table for their family and working two jobs and, and, or, or what have you. I mean, it, I'm not just saying, well, you know, go, go hit the treadmill and, and you'll survive COVID. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that. There are, there are structural reasons why, as I mentioned, you know, American body mass has increased, you know, over the last decades. And, and it's because, you know, we're not structuring our lives around those things and that would keep us in better shape. And, and it's not an individual's fault. It's, you know, it's the way society is constructed that there, you know, isn't enough time in the day for, for everyone to, uh, to take advantage of, of exercise and what have you. So when I'm saying like, what, well, one thing you could do is walk 30 minutes a day. I mean, I don't mean that in a finger wagging way. I just mean, if the vaccines aren't providing full protection and it seems that like they're not, then it's probably an inevitability that, you know, everyone listening to this broadcast will one day get COVID. I hope it's, you know, asymptomatic, but, you know, this is going to be with us long enough that we can modify our own risk factors. And you, you asked about, you know, being overweight. I, I don't think over, I think age, which is not modifiable, alas, we all age a year, every year that goes by, but, you know, I don't think being overweight uh, trumps, other risk factors, but to the extent to which it is one, you know, we can try to address it. I mean, there's still a lot that we don't understand. So I think, I hope that's a useful answer. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. My guest today is UCI pandemic expert and public health professor, Andrew Neumer. What about these alternatives? People, you know, vitamin D, hydrochloroquine, zinc, well, I mean, hydrochloroquine and ivermectin are two drugs that have been tried. And, you know, the, the reasons to believe that th- these drugs would have strong antiviral properties for COVID are, are really kind of thin. But the idea took hold in, in each case that, that this was going to be a, a savior medicine. And I mean, both of these have been trialed and they just didn't pan out. I mean, I don't want to go into all the details, but I mean, so I would say unequivocally to the KUCI listeners, don't treat COVID with with ivermectin or with hydroxychloroquine. Now, uh, vitamin D is an interesting one. You know, vitamin D plays a role in the immune system and vitamin D goes down in the wintertime because we get vitamin D from ultraviolet radiation from the sun principally. And we know that vitamin D plays a role in the immune system, and we, we even know some of the pathways through which it does so. So a lot of people have therefore said that the seasonality of infectious diseases being more dominant in the wintertime 
is due to vitamin D. I actually believe that that's kind of a leap. I, there's other things that change in the wintertime other than just 25-OHD levels in people's blood, the vitamin D levels in people's blood. So it's clear that, you know, any of your listeners who suffer from clinically low vitamin D levels can profitably supplement themselves, particularly in the winter months with vitamin D. Vitamin D is good for health and it's good for fighting off infectious diseases. I don't think that vitamin D is the governing factor in, in COVID epidemiology. So your typical listener to this podcast has serum 25 OHD levels that are perfectly adequate for healthy life and won't benefit from supplementation and won't be at lower risk for COVID if they supplement. So, I mean, it, that, this is all kind of a long way of saying, no, I don't think vitamin D is an important factor either. But if any of your you know, listeners have a, a history of low vitamin D levels, you know, they can still profitably supplement. But for someone who, who has regular vitamin D levels, I mean, I mean supplementing is, is not going to help. I mean, they're just sort of, you, you reach a, a threshold of, uh, of how, how useful that is. Gotcha. It, it appears that vaccine mandates through companies, this seems to be a new trend. Companies are going to require it or you lose your job. Well, uh, my employer, the University of California, requires vaccination for all students, faculty, and staff who are on site. And there are some limited exemptions with weekly testing as an a requirement for, for anyone who meets some of those limited exceptions. Employers are increasingly requiring it. Private employers, some public employers are increasingly requiring it as well, like so states and counties and cities. The city of Santa Ana this week announced that all city employees would have to be vaccinated. As is often the case with these press releases describing mandatory vaccination for employment, the fine print says that Employees covered by collective bargaining agreements, this agreement will depend upon union approval. So the police officers union in Santa Ana, I think, has said that they're looking at it. So, you know, it remains to be seen whether 100% of uh, city employees in Santa Ana, particularly if you're including uh, police and fire, it remains to be seen whether they will be, you know, bound by this. But the Supreme Court has weighed in, at least for the time being, that these mandates are legal. There's a longstanding legal precedent, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, 1905, that uh, states can uh, require vaccination under certain circumstances. And it's pretty clear legally that a private entity like a business can require vaccination and do so legally. I don't foresee a vaccine mandate for every citizen or every resident. Um, I don't think we're going to have a, you know, like if you know, every member of the public must be vaccinated, which, which I would call a mandate, but there are already, and there are going to be requirements that are linked to airline travel or education or employment, because, you know, being a student at, at a school or college or having a job XYZ enterprise, public or private, is a privilege, not a right. And so they can uh, require, you know, vaccination. So, I, I mean, I think that's just 
something we're going we're gonna to see more of. And I guess the devil is going to be in the details of enforcement and compliance. But I mean, legally speaking, I mean, that's kind of a, I'm not trying to evade your question by saying it's legal. I think it also makes sense from the public health perspective to say, you know, uh, uh, University of California is, uh, is a dense environment. We have classrooms, we have uh, office buildings and labs. And, you know, we want everyone to be vaccinated. And there's also a mask order on the UC Irvine campus right now that in, for indoor spaces where multiple people gather that, that everyone has to mask. So someone alone in their office uh, doesn't have to wear a mask, but um, anytime you're in any kind of public space of a UC Irvine uh, building, you have uh, masking is required. Uh, and this brings us back to actually something that I had intended to, to mention earlier in our conversation is that I, I think masking and vaccination work kind of synergistically. So masking is a, is a barrier between our respiratory tract and, and, and the environment. And uh, the viral particles get trapped in the fibers of the, uh, the mask and the droplets that carry the viral particles, uh, you know, break their droplet form through surface te- tension, uh, the surface tension breaks and the water gets absorbed into the fibers of the mask and it eventually dries out. The point is that the number of viral particles that get through the mask is much lower than the number of viral particles uh, that would otherwise enter the respiratory tract. And so, I mean, masks aren't perfect, but they do a good job of trapping the virus and, and some masks are better than others. And and then vaccination, as we've seen, is not perfect either, but there's a dose response curve. So, I mean, it's not a single virus that makes you sick. I mean, typically for viruses like coronavirus, you need like a thousand viral particles to enter your body to have a viable infection take hold. Mm. And so by reducing the inoculum size, which is just a technical term for the, the number of viral particles that enter your body that causes the, that eventually causes the infection by reducing the average inoculum size, the masks can push the ultimate infection down to a kind of an asymptomatic infection. And particularly if the person is vaccinated. So it's not just like, well, I'm not going to vaccinate, but I'm going to mask or I'm not going to mask because I'm vaccinated. If you do both, you're really standing yourself in in much better stead than doing one or the other. And it's more than additive. It's, uh, it's sort of multiplicative. Like I'm not, masked uh, every time I leave my house. But when I go to indoor public spaces like the grocery store, nowadays in August 2021, I am wearing a mask. And, and that's despite uh, my being fully vaccinated. Professor, just to, I'll, I'll just close with my, my take. And if you want to add anything at the very end. So my take at this point is at this point in the pandemic, 18 months or so into it, is that we are making progress. We have uh, vaccines that, you know, they may not be perfect. They, and there may be risk involved, but it's a choice. And we've seen states where the choice has been made that a lot of people are not going to get vaccinated. So we see right now that the state of Alabama has no ICU beds, none, because 
the infection is rampant and there's multiple states like that, Florida, Texas, et cetera. So vaccination and masks to get more increased protection, but that, you know, the pandemic's not going away anytime soon. And that's the best we got right now. That's my take, but I'm just one guy. You're the expert. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. In closing, there's definitely a, a correlation emerging between at the state level between severity of the, of the pandemic right now and vaccination rates. And as you pointed out, Alabama is in the throes of a terrible COVID crisis. And I mean a real crisis, as you point out, there's, there's, they have no free ICU beds and, and so on. And Alabama is, is the lowest, I, I believe, or the second lowest state in terms of uh, COVID vaccine uptake. Uh, they're in the, they're like at 40% or in the high 30s of population that's fully vaccinated and that's not good enough and and we see the consequences. So, I mean, I, I definitely think California will fare better because we have a higher vaccination rate. There are states like Vermont that are doing better than us. So we, we can still aspire to doing better. You know, COVID has shown time and time again that it's a uncompromising pandemic. So you know, we shouldn't gloat about our situation being better than Alabama because, you know, we may have another wave in store here in California. So, you know, the time to uh, high five ourselves about uh, our great vaccination rate is, is, is not now because we don't really want to tempt fate. Uh, and I mean, I, gu- I guarantee you in one way, shape or form, this pandemic still has legs and you know, I do anticipate lower mortality as we move forward, but I think we still have some twists and turns in the road, in, uh, certainly in Mississippi, but also in Alabama and Florida, as you mentioned, but also here in California. I think we're, we're, we're not out of the woods yet, and um, I, 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 I wouldn't anticipate that this will be the last time you and I speak on KUCI about coronavirus as an ongoing event. And uh I look forward to talking to the KUCI listeners again, but uh, um, I, I also look forward to the uh, episode where, where you and I talk about the pandemic in the past tense. Hear, hear. Thank you again to UCI pandemic expert, public health professor Andrew Neumer for all his work keeping the public informed and bringing the most recent information to the forefront. It is a revelation to me that after 18 months with covid that the pandemic is still evolving and more will be revealed. Stay tuned and stay safe, my friends. And now turning the page, coming up next at the top of the hour is The Ash Coomer Show, where Ash interviews interesting people from all walks of life. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 Everyday Anteaters, right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This show and all my previous shows can be accessed 24-7 on my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at kuci.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, encouraging you to keep working hard and having fun. We will get through this. And leading the show out is the piano man himself, Fred Kaplan, from his great blues CD, Signifying. So long, everybody. Happy trails.